Now let's look to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to hang out verse 20 and following. But let me catch us up. If you're new to Meadowbrook, I want to give you a little review where we've been and remind us of the truths that we have already been coming through that we're reaching hold of. In fact, when I was just going back through and writing down the summaries of those past few messages, I was really tempted not to preach an entire message again on just the summary because it's so rich in truth. It's truth that I need so desperately in my heart and to be given to it. I need this to be the view by which I view myself and the world and others. So just look at it. It's in your, in your handout. At least I, I believe that it is. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Uh, we're talking today about capacity to love with earnestness, uh, fervency, and uh, really intensity. But to get there, we have to remember that Peter is walking us through in this letter how we live our Christian life in turbulent times. So when we have tumultuous times like we do, and certainly they did in the diaspora there in the New Testament of the first century where there was real intense persecution, uh, God gives us instruction on how we live through that, not just how we survive that, but how we thrive in that. And, and know that God is very much in the midst of that and he is very much in the move on that. And we recognize first in verse 3 that he tells us to have our focus on the living hope extended through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot say this enough. This ought to be the mantra of our heart that the resurrection changes everything. When it comes to harsh times, when it comes to difficult days, when it comes to doctors telling you bad news or the economy going sour or troublesomeness in our community, here's the answer. The resurrection changes everything. He is making all things new. And though I might die in the flesh, which I will, the resurrection changes even that reality. The resurrection is our hope. And so we ought to have our hope set on that. Now, so often we focus on, God, get me out of this situation. God, rectify this. God, remedy that. And we ought to be praying for that because God is a God of love and he loves to do good things for his children. But more than that, we ought to be praying, God, keep my focus on the day ahead. Keep my focus on the resurrection, the glorious truth that is ours in Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, verse 4 and 5 says that we ought to live with God's inheritance in mind. That there is a greater inheritance coming. So, okay, the economy is a little shaky right now. If you, if you hear a lot of forecasters are saying it might be even shakier in the future. Okay, all of that is going to be burned away anyway. Here, here's what I know to be true. God has an inheritance that is secure in heaven for all who follow him. And that inheritance is not going to be touched. And it's very cyclic here, right? Things come and go, they ebb and flow, but not in heaven. Inherit, in heaven, our inheritance is secure. So we ought to live with that in mind. Verse 6 and 7, he said, rejoice in truths. And that kind of rejo rejoicing in, in trials is going to result in praise, glory, and honor unto Christ because he has been testing our faith, improving our faith. And in that day when we see him, when we're made to be him, like him, then it will be to his praise, honor, and glory that we have come through those trials. You're going to have a very different perspective, and so will I. When we look back from eternity to this time of trial, we will see the glory, honor, and praise that is due to Christ, even in the midst of the trial. And I would say because of the trial. 
And then he says in verse 13 that we ought to live expecting the glorious return of Christ. Uh, when Kay and I see a dramatic sunset, when we see the sun piercing through clouds from time to time, we will say, I wonder if the Lord's coming back today. You ever feel that way? Uh, it's not going to be in the sunset. That's to the west, and the Lord's going to return in the east. Uh, but at any rate, it makes us mindful that Christ is returning, and that's what he's saying there. Live with the expectation of Christ's return. The Lord is returning. The Lord is returning. The Lord's returning, and it will be in glory, and he will bring all who are with him there on that glorious day. And then uh, reject conformity to the former passion, passions that we had and embrace God's holiness for which he calls us. Verse 14 through 16. We're just rejecting those things of the flesh, recognizing we still struggle with them because they were born in our flesh. But we reject those and we have power now by the Holy Spirit to actually walk in and embrace the holiness of Christ that lives in us by the nature of his spirit. Then he gives us three commands. They're, they're just really insistent imperatives that he tells us that we ought to be moving towards. And I say those commands actually come out of a reality of who God himself is. And you see that in these three commands. First, God's holiness motivates us to live as his holy children. Because God is holy, he demands we be holy. Why does he make that demand? Because he's our father, we're, our, we're his children brought into his family. And because we are to be like our father, he says, as I am holy, you be holy. Now listen, that's not up to you. God has given you holiness. He's imputed the righteousness of Christ. He has given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is giving you the word of God which will shape your life to holiness. And he says, in this relationship we have with him, I'm commanding you as I am holy, be holy. You ought to take that very seriously. What you say ought to be holy. Now look, the vernacular of the world has degraded, has it not? I'm just going to go out on a limb here for a moment. I hear the vernacular of Christians, and it's degrading. And God says, as my children, be holy as I am holy. You say, well, what's a little slip of the word here or there matter? It exposes your heart. It's out of the heart you hear what comes out from the mouth. It's an exposing of your heart. And God is wanting to shape us and fashion us and make us more and more like Christ who is holy, more in link with his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And so he says, be holy. What you do, where you go, who you're engaged with, what you're engaged with, what you say, be holy. Why? Because you're my children. And because I am holy, you be holy. You know, I represent my father everywhere I go. My sons represent me. And as the children of God, so we represent God. Be holy, God says, because I am holy. And then he makes this, this next command that's so incredibly sharp. He says, he is impartial in his judgment, and that ought to constrain us to a conduct that is reverent with fear. We ought to live before, quorum Deo, 
We ought to live before the face of God knowing that he is an impartial judge and because he will not give people passes here and there, he is an impartial judge. He says, let your conduct be such because you walk in reverential fear of me. Do you know that we're going to have to answer to everything that is done in this body? Did you know that every idle word is going to be addressed when we stand before Christ? Now, it's not under judgment for those who have received Christ and he has, he has shared your judgment with himself on the cross of Calvary. It's not unto judgment, but it is accountable. And he will reward us in our faithfulness. So we ought to live in the conduct of our living with a reverential fear of God. With the fear of God, knowing that we will stand before Christ. And then number three, which I'm going to focus on today, God's loving sacrifice of Christ Jesus compels us to love intensely. God's sacrifice of his son compels us to love intensely. Now let's look at verse 20 and 21. Jesus Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Man, there's a lot of power in this little section of Scripture because it is telling us that God's redemptive plan has always been from eternity past, God's redemptive plan has always been. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned and God's up there scrambling, wondering what he's going to do next, how he's going to fix this. No, no. It's been the plan of God. Redemption has been the plan of God even before creation was put in order. He planned for our redemption before he created the world and put Adam and Eve in the garden. And long before they sinned against him and long before you and I lived our life in rebelliousness against him, God made a way of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And there's so much freedom and encouragement in that truth because it frees us from any notion that we can achieve or earn or find salvation. God has planned it. God has initiated it. Before any of us were, God predestined our salvation and he enacted his redemptive plan through his son at the appointed time. Remember, Jesus would say uh, fairly consistently in the early time of his ministry, my glory is not yet. It's, it's, not, it's not time for my glory to be revealed yet. You know why? Because it wasn't the appointed time. It was already planned from eternity past, but God's appointed time was given unto Christ, and he was fully obedient to that. So God's love, commitment, and predetermined grace should compel us to an ever-increasing pursuit of holiness and love. So when you just reflect on the goodness of God, his grace, his predetermined salvation for you, his calling unto you, his fulfillment of that, that ought to cause us to have an increase, increasing hunger to live holy lives and to love in an increasing way because we see it in God's great love extended to us. So as we go along, the points are sort of summary statements at the conclusion of what I'm sharing with you and I've turned them into prayers and I wondered if you might be agreeable to just say these out loud as if we're expressing a prayer unto the Lord. So let's say this together. Oh Lord, 
help me be ever mindful to pursue a life of holiness and love increasingly. What a prayer. You might just circle that in your handout. Come back to that and let that be a prayer throughout the week. Oh, Lord, help me to be mindful today, ever mindful today, to pursue a life of holiness and love increasingly. Help me today. Can I just tell you that the enemy is going to bring all kinds of distractions to your thoughts? He's going to throw all kinds of things at you in entertainment. He's going to throw all kinds of confusion at you. He's going to try to take your thoughts captive unto him. But as we pray in the morning and throughout the day, oh Lord, let me be ever mindful of this pursuit of holiness that you called me to. Let me be ever increasing in my love today. But now look at verse 22 and following. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass. And it's all, all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers and the flower falls. I've, I've been to, to Israel, into the Negev, the desert regions there. And when it's talking about grass, it's, it's not grass like you and I are thinking. It's not like your Bermuda lawn that's, that you water and fertilize regularly. It, it, it's not the St. Augustine that you have in your yard, perhaps, or something that you see in a pasture. It's not that. I mean, this is sparse, little tufts of what you and I would call weed. And that's pretty much what is there for the grazing. But something really astonishing happens where there is that rare moment of rain in the desert, in the Negev. In those rare times, those little tufts actually bring forth flowers. And man, are they incredible. Because where there is seemingly nothing but dry, desert, rocky heat, there is beauty. But it goes by really quick. Because the desert is a rough terrain. It's a rough condition. The, the climate there is, is brutal. And soon that flower will wilt away and die. And soon that grass will go back to its dormant state and it's just trans transformed back into what seems to be dead. And here Peter is, is describing life like that. He's actually quoting from Isaiah who, who understood the brevity of life and he's saying that, man, our life is like that. It's but just a moment where there's just glory and beauty and, and then we die. It's not always going to be that way. One day graves are going to open up and the dead will be brought forth unto eternal life. It's not always that we're going to, to be gone here today and gone tomorrow, but it is that way right now. So verse 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So up to this point, Peter has been telling people who have been living in troublesome times how they enter into a relationship with God. He reminds them that they're chosen of God, sanctified by God, cleansed by the blood of the Son of God. 
So clearly, Peter wants us to know that God is initiated and fully facilitates our salvation. So, so if, you're, if you haven't listened to anything yet, hang on to that moment. Because God is fully initiating and bringing about everything regarding our salvation. So as he moves upon our heart, we have the opportunity to obey the truth. So let's consider what he's talking about here in 1 Peter where he says that God is purifying our souls by our obedience to the truth. It can be a, a little bit confusing, that verse, because verse 22 doesn't mention the word faith at all. And when you and I think about salvation, we know faith is intricately involved. So we think about faith regarding our salvation. But Peter doesn't mention that in verse 22. But I can tell you he's been talking about it for the first 21 verses there. It's just over and over and over. So he says our obedience to the truth is what purifies our souls. So what he's saying there is, is our obedience to the truth is responding to the gospel, the word of God, by faith. Jesus succinctly said that same thing in a prayer. He said to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So we're sanctified by the word of God. And the truth is the word of God, right? And in the context of salvation, it's the message of Christ the word of God, the message of Christ, his testimony, his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of that. We place our faith and trust that God has provided our salvation through Christ. And in that, we are purified. Now look back with me for a second, back to verse 2 of 1 Peter. And you see that you're saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I'm not going to go back and repeat that message, but let me just highlight salvation is according to the foreknowledge of God. That is, God has a predetermined relationship and in his timeless order, he foreknew that. It's a wonder of salvation that God not only foreknew our salvation, but he predetermined our salvation man let's just rest in that truth I just rest right there it's not about me clawing my way to God it's not about me getting my life right before I can come before God no God initiated it and God brought it about and Jesus fully accomplished it and the spirit made it happen it's a wondrous truth and he says in verse 2 that we are set apart by the spirit that is we're declared justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ and he has justified us before God. That is, he has justified us as if we have never sinned an infraction against God. Christ has fully paid for that sin. He has given us our salvation and his righteousness set apart, holy unto God. You know, when you're set apart by the Spirit, you are taken from something and presented to something. We're taken from the world, we're brought into the kingdom of light. We're taken out of unholiness, we're brought into holiness. We're taken out of unrighteousness and brought into righteousness. And all that's the work of Christ, our Lord, through his death and resurrection. And, of course, it is to be repentant and obedient to Christ, for he is Lord. And by the sprinkling of blood, I don't have time to go into it, but if we were walk back through the Old Testament, we would see that the sprinkling of blood was a symbolic way of sealing a covenant 
And by Christ's shedding of blood, he pays the penalty of our sin and he cleanses us of that sin. And we enter into the covenant that he's establishing by his own blood. And as we enter into the covenant, we make a pledge of obedience to him. That's what it is when we declare him to be Lord. When we declare him as Lord, we are declaring you are the ruler, you are the king, you are the master, and I am your slave. In other words, I'm declaring my obedience unto you. From this point forward. That's our part of the covenant. And God has established the covenant in grace. But we move forward. Receiving that covenant with an obedience. So gloriously as I've already mentioned. Colossians 1.13. Purifying us. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So let's say this aloud. Oh Lord. I receive and obey your call to salvation by faith. Hey, for some of you, that's not just to be repeated because I'm asking you to. It ought to be the essence of your heart's longing right now. No more of this trying to figure it out, clean it up, get it right, do it over. Just coming to conclusion, Lord, I receive and obey your call of salvation by faith. You've yet to do that. And I'm here to tell you that God is offering his salvation to you freely. Why? Because he is love. He's love. And he's reaching out to you. He's calling to you. Say, okay, I want to be loved by God and I want to receive his salvation. Then receive it by the shed blood of Christ Jesus with your pledge to walk under his lordship. That's the genuineness of the call of salvation. And now Peter is turning his attention away from our life in relationship with God specifically. And he's saying, now that you're in relationship with God, you've got to be rightfully in relationship with the people of God. And that's where this book is, is, is moving to. So as we enter into a relationship with God by faith and obedience, we enter into a relationship with the family of God with sincere brotherly love. I grew up with two brothers, and I can tell you brotherly love wasn't necessarily in my heart back when I was growing up. And so I'm glad Peter qualifies this, and he says it ought to be sincere brotherly love. Genuine love of family. There's an inextricable connection between God's love demonstrated to us and our love demonstrated to other believers. You catch that? In the measure by which God loves and shows love to us, he demands that we love each other in that way. A new command I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's a pretty significant challenge isn't it it's a command it can only be exercised by the work of the holy spirit in us it can't be brought about by our will or our intent or good intentions or purposes it is by god's declaration the spirit's empowerment that that kind of love can help so in other words people who have received god's predetermined unconditional love will have an intense love for others who are experiencing the same thing Predetermined, intentional. 
Right, so when you come into the faith family, when you're taken out of darkness, brought into the kingdom of Christ, then you have a predetermined love for the family of God. A predetermined love. Regardless if you've met them or not, regardless if you can call them by name or not, regardless if you're in the same life group or not, regardless if they ticked you off in the past or not, it's a predetermined love that God has given to us and he says for us to exercise to one another. So John, 1 John chapter 4 says this, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Oh, this eighth verse is just really earth-shaking. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's how serious God takes this. So we need to understand a, a real practical application of this truth. Listen to me, because there's no such thing as a Christian living purposefully in isolation from the body of Christ. There's just no such thing as that. It's foreign to the New Testament for someone to claim to be in relationship with God while insisting not to be in relationship with the people of God. So you show me somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't go to church. I don't hang out with church. I don't, I don't go on Sundays. I don't minister to church people. I'm just disassociated from the church. You are talking to someone who is grossly in error or at worst, is actually unsaved. Is here's what God is saying to us. It is an inextricable link. My love for you and your love for one another. You cannot disconnect from the people of God and stay connected to Christ. The very fact that you're connected to Christ makes you love others with a sincere brotherly love to be part of the family. So by God's design, new life and church life are eternally and purposefully intertwined. You say, well, I don't know that to be true. Uh, who do you think is going to be in heaven? The church. Who do you think sits down together at the first meal with Christ? The church. Eternity is for the church. You're going to live forever and ever with the church. And so God says, uh, I want the expression of that here on earth. I, I want to demonstrate my love for you. I want to fill you and your heart with my love. And I want you to exercise that love to others who you're going to spend all eternity with. With salvation, God's spirit takes up residence in us. His nature of love is indwelling us. He empowers us. To choose to love others fully and God designs and instructs us to make our brothers and sisters in Christ the very target of our love. The people around us right now, they are to be the target of our love. And we ought to shoot that love at them constantly. We ought to communicate it regularly. We ought to show acts of love on a regular basis because God has given us a heart full of love and he says let it be targeted specifically to the people of my faith family so listen to his instruction our love for one another must be sincere and earnest with a pure heart 
sincere and earnest from a pure heart. Now let's break that down for a minute. Sincere, love that's sincere is not hypocritical. It's not a fake. It's not you driving up on the parking lot and getting that, that smile on your face and telling everybody everything's fine and uh, going on in, into your cliques and just loving on a select few people. No, let me tell you, it's eager to be here, eager to love on people, eager to encourage them, to uh, really affirm them, to lift them up, to speak God's truth in them, to sing in a way in this place, in this building, so that somebody else knows the love of God in your heart and you want to lift them up in song. It's saying the echoes of the truth, not just for you, but that others might hear it. It's walking out of here and sensing somebody's got something going on and you say, hey, can we pull over here and pray together? It's just encouraging the saints with love. You come into this place looking for the opportunity to express love, not not to be entertained, not to hope the preacher's on his game today, but no, I've come to share the love of God. And when we come to share the love of God, man, does God's love ever flow. You can't deplete it. You give love and God will give more. You pour out love and God will pour more in. You come with the purpose of being poured out and you'll find that there is an unending source of the Spirit of God that's dwelling within you who just keeps on giving more and more of his love. It's a predetermined love that God has exercised towards us. It is not going to end. So you just come with an opportunity to love and then through the week you give great encouragement in text and calls and visits and love in response to one another. When you think of people, you pray for them, perhaps even every now and then, just, hey, you're on my mind right now. I just wanted to know I'm praying for you. Man, do I ever love you? We ought to hear those words regularly. I love you. It's a sincere love, not one that's fake, not one that's just because we believe that this is what we're supposed to do, but it's one that is filling our heart. And in the bright and shining love that God gives us, man, does it ever pierce the darkness that is all around us. If you're paying attention to what's going on in the world today, you find hate, vitriol just expressed constantly. You find flashes of anger and murderous intent and rebelliousness that's constantly being expressed. And in the midst of that darkness, my friends, people who express love, genuine, sincere love, are like a beacon burning in the darkness. Jesus said it would be that way, that we ought to be like a city on a hill, ought to be easy to see, that we ought to be the brightness that is shining so. And the love ought to be earnest. By the way, the word love here is agapao in the original language, and it is an exercise of the will, not the emotion. It's a choice. Agapao is a choice. God chooses to love us. We didn't earn God's love. God chooses to love us. I was pretty in love with Kay way early in my life. We grew up in the nursery together. Our families were friends. Held her hand, I'm sure, as a toddler. Went on vacations together. And when I finally convinced her to drop her boyfriend, I proposed to her. <laughs> I couldn't get enough of her in those days. 
I would be over at her house. We'd spend all evening together. And then I'd rush home and I'd get to the kitchen and I'd dial her number and I'd have that 25-foot cord on our phone extended all the way out so that my brothers and sisters would not hear me talking to her. Man, was I ever in love. I'm still in love with her in that way. But my love is much deeper now. It's an agapao love. Because there's sometimes that it's not an emotional love that I feel, but it's a determination in my heart to love her. I know it's shocking to you, but we are not always so nice and friendly. <laughs> There's not always a smile on our face. There are times that it's tough. And that's when agapao, the love of God, is chosen. You just choose to love. Some of you are in very difficult relationships. I counsel some of you. And I tell you the same thing. You're going to have to choose to love. Even if they are not receptive to it, even if you never get a response back, you choose to love. And in that, your life may not be happy here on earth, but I can tell you God will choose that weakness in you to make you holy. And in your agapao, in your choice of love, you honor God. One day you'll stand before Christ himself and he will look you in the eye and he'll say, well done, you're a good and faithful servant. Stay the course of agapao, a chosen love. Stay the course. Demonstrate the love that God has poured into your heart. But now look, as, as easy and rich as that is for families, here's what he's saying. This is the way I want it to be for the church. I want you to have a chosen love for one another. As you stay the course. And I want it to be an earnest love. That means a stretched out love. Like to the point that your muscles and your tendons sort of are about to break. I am not a mechanic. I, I wish I had a mechanical mindset. I don't. I've had to learn some things because I can't afford not to. And when my mower breaks, I may have to put it up on ramps and crawl under there. Maybe I'm swapping out some blades on that thing. Uh, it takes me two or three times to do it before I finally get it right. I assemble it. I have to reassemble it because it didn't work right. And do that two or three times. I'm not very mechanical. One of the things that I know I'm not mechanical about is that I lie down and I start reaching for tools. And they're there. And then mysteriously, somehow, they're not there anymore. Are you like that? And so I'll reach for the tool when I finally find it. It's somehow just out of reach. And I reach way out there to the point that you'll get a cramp. You with me? You've been there? That's the word that Peter uses when he's saying immense love, earnest love. That's the word. It's meaning stretched out to the point that it's about to break, but it doesn't. Now listen to me, when he's applying that to our love for one another, he's saying there are times that you're going to have to choose to love and you're going to have to stretch way out there to grab hold of somebody, to bring them back way out there to communicate your love. When it would be easier to say, oh, forget it. No, he says, let it be stretched out. A sincere, earnest love 
That's what he's calling us to. And a, a love that comes from a pure heart. This pure heart is made, this heart is made pure by the Holy Spirit, right? It's made, made pure by him and it's evidenced by his work in us that we will love. We choose to love by the purity of our heart that the Holy Spirit lives within and we exercise that love. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit, the, the list of nine, the first of that is love. Love. It ought to be evident that the Spirit is very much alive in us because of our love one for another. And so to obey this passage and walk in its blessings, we have to understand that what God desires and he expects of us in our church life I don't mean to offend you or anybody else, but a demonstration of this love is impossible if your church engagement consists of sitting on your couch watching a service in your PJs. You cannot love the church from that place. This kind of love is not going to happen if all you do is come and go to a service. It requires living life together purposefully, intentionally pursuing the command of God because the Spirit of God is filling your heart with love. Engage. At the most elementary place, life groups are the way we start. Getting involved in life groups in each other's lives, spending time together, fellowshipping together, ministering to one another, praying diligently for one another, Looking for opportunity to show love by encouraging and building people up. Not just coming and going. It's not about a Bible study alone. It's about a Bible study that shapes our life to be more expressive of the things of God, including love. So some people have experienced significant hurt in church life. You've been so disappointed, so hurt. And as a result, you've pulled back and you have stopped participating but unfortunately in your protection mode you've allowed that hurt to actually perpetrate even further robbing you of the blessings of obedience and your brothers and sisters in Christ from the fullness of God's blessings of intense love that he wants you to demonstrate to them you say but the hurt exposed to me is too much then turn that over to God and get your thoughts off of yourself and put your thoughts onto honoring Christ by loving his faith family, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, I don't know that I can do that. Oh, you can't. But the Spirit of Christ in you can. You be the vessel and let him bring that work of love in you. Earnest love requires being present and in relationship with one another. In fact, we are chosen by God and sanctified by your spirit, cleansed by Jesus and sacrificed, and then baptized. That means be immersed into one body. He's not talking about water baptism there. He's talking about being immersed into the body of Christ. So, yes, thank God he chose us. Thank God he has sanctified us by, our, by his spirit. Thank God that his blood of his own son has cleansed us and thank God that he has immersed us into the body, the church. Don't let that fourth one slide past. This is what Peter is saying. When you're living in turbulent, troublesome times, make sure that you're engaging in love with one another. 
So let's say this aloud. Lord, help me engage and immensely love the body of Christ, the church. Help me. Help me. Man, I probably would circle that because you're going to need his help, and so do I. Help me, Lord, to engage and immensely love the body of Christ, the church. In verse 23 and 25 through 25, Peter tells us why and how we can love so fully. And he says it's because we have been born again to a new life by the living and abiding word of God. I am like you. I marvel at God's creative order, especially that life perpetuates by seeds. I know scientifically that if the right conditions are put in order, then the dead seed can actually bring forth life. I know all that. I know the biology of that, but I'm going to tell you, it mystifies me every time. It's just so intriguing. Take an acorn, for example. When the seed falls into the ground, it can germinate and bring forth and grow into a tree that can actually live between one and three centuries long can be several tens of thousands of pounds and can reach to the sky. It turns out that there is life capacity in the seed of an acorn, just like there is life capacity in the seeds of every plant and animal. But as wonderful as that biological process is, there is a harsh reality, and that is that all seeds are corrupt. Everything that is brought to life by seed here in this world is going to end up being perishable. It's corrupt. All living things like oak trees will eventually fall. But Peter is quoting from Isaiah here an illustration saying all flesh like grass and the glory like the flower of the grass, it's all going to wither and the flower is going to fall. Our spiritual lives are different though. Our life in the spirit is not brought about by a corruptible seed. It is brought about by what is incorruptible, and that is the word of God. And so he is saying that this, this change in you is going to last forever. It will not end. It will not fall. It will not falter. It is a, a word that is going to remain forever. It always has been and it always will be. So God gives us significant capacity when we are born again. And Peter reminds us of that. He is writing to us about this new birth that we have by the word of God. And he uses it as a perfect tense participle, which means it is something that has happened in the past, but it has ongoing capacity capacity that is still being experienced to this day and will continue to be experienced. So you were saved gloriously by your faith in God who brought his son into the world to redeem you. And in that salvation, he brought you to a point of spiritual birth. You have been born again. That has happened already. And it is continuous in its impact in your life so that you can love and keep on loving. You say, well, what about all this hurt that I've experienced? Oh, God has made it so that you can get past that and continue in your love. Restart your love because of the new birth that is in you by a seed that is not perishing you're just going to have to trust him and start exercising in that some of you are so miserable in your bitterness so rehearsed in your hurt but if you have faith in God 
and his word. He has brought life into you from above. And it's a life that is not perishing. It's a life that has lasting impact to this day. You've just got to trust and treasure that truth and begin to exercise it. So we come to this last statement that I'd like for you to say aloud. Oh, Lord, you've given me the capacity to live and love well. Find me faithful. The capacity belongs to God. And he has impregnated that in you to bring forth life. Now be faithful in it. What a call, huh? What a glorious call. Lord, as we just pause now to reflect on all the truth that your spirit has reminded us of and pointed out to us, and the places in our life where we have faltered from it, I pray by your power of your word, your spirit, that you would bring us back into right standing. As the plumb line of your word has come down and you find our lives leaning away from it, I pray, Lord, that you would right us. As we make confession of those sins which are so horrid because they affect not only us but affect the body of Christ, as we confess those to you, Lord, we ask for your faith to be given in such a way that we would walk in repentance and your grace would bring transformation, that we would trust your truth enough to take the first step of walking in faith in this truth. And oh, Lord, how freeing it is, how wonderfully blessed we are when we walk in your truth, and not only us, but our family around us. So I thank you for the treasures of today. And I pray that you would find us faithful to receive them, believe them, and walk in them. In Jesus' name, amen.